Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The basement was damp and dark. Looking around, Paul Leon fidgeted in his seat, nervous. Paris was too dangerous. He'd heard that the Nazis were rounding up his fellow Jews. The other rumors about what happened next were too horrible to think about. He needed to escape. Paul Leon watched as Dr. Eugene descended the stairs. He listened as the doctor told him that the preparations had been made. He would help him flee the city and travel to South America. They would be leaving in just a moment. Paul Leon stood, eager to get going, but Dr. Eugene held up a hand. First, there was the matter of payment. Paul Leon reached into his pocket and handed the doctor an envelope thick with bills, 25,000 francs. The doctor smiled as he counted the money. Then he opened a small bag slung over his shoulder. From it, he pulled a syringe and a vial of a pale blue liquid. Dr. Eugene explained that Argentina's immigration laws were strict. All incoming passengers had to be immunized. The doctor insisted. Paul Leon rolled up his sleeve and allowed the doctor to inject him. As instructed, he sat down to wait while the doctor made final preparations. After a few minutes, he knew that something wasn't right. His heart felt like it was on fire and he was struggling to catch his breath. As he slipped sideways out of his chair, Dr. Eugene turned around. The doctor's evil grin was the last thing Paul Leon ever saw. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a ParCast original. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're discussing Marcel Petiu, a serial killer who operated in Nazi-occupied Paris. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Serial Killers for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. This week, we'll be covering Marcel Petiu, a serial killer and con artist who operated a fake escape network out of Nazi-occupied Paris. During the Second World War, Petiu killed those who came to see him seeking sanctuary, earning him nicknames like Dr. Satan and the Werewolf of Paris. Next week, we'll delve deeper into Petiu's deadly scheme, the people who helped him, and his fateful run-ins with the Gestapo. We've got all that and more after this. This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more. Live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com. 
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Born into a typical upper-middle-class family in Auxerre, France, Marcel Petiu's upbringing was, as far as we can tell, unremarkable. However, it's important to note that Petiu's later infamy invited speculation and rumor about the details of his life. He was known to lie whenever it suited him. Therefore, it can be difficult to separate the fact from fiction. In school, Petiu proved to be highly gifted and displayed a maturity that outstripped his classmates. He read at a higher level and was able to absorb difficult concepts far more rapidly than his cohorts. He also displayed some rather disturbing traits. He would spend long stretches of time in relative isolation. He didn't seem to have, and maybe didn't want, any friends. However, he did have a hobby that kept him occupied, killing animals. He also showed a delight in tormenting others. In one account, Pichu invited a classmate to play circus with him. He stood the other boy against a door and threw knives so that they struck the wood around the terrified playmate. As he got older, he was caught sharing obscene photographs around class. At 11, he reportedly propositioned a classmate for sex. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Looking at his troubling behavior, young Petiu was already showing what we now recognize as warning signs for a future serial killer. Childhood voyeurism, promiscuity, and torturing or killing small animals are considered aspects of the typical serial killer, and these have often been the youthful traits of future mass murderers. With red flags popping up this early, it's unsurprising to learn that one day Pichu brought his father's revolver to class. He was reportedly angry that he'd been punished after his earlier misbehavior. In retaliation, he fired the gun inside the school. As far as we can tell, no one was hurt. The resulting suspension was just one of many Petiu received during his education. Unsure how to handle their son's behavior, his parents sought help from physicians. They claimed he was a chronic sleepwalker, suffered from convulsions, and frequently wet the bed. Though it was clear to the doctors that young Petiu was troubled, no official diagnosis was forthcoming. But there was little time to focus on Marcel Petiu's mental health. In 1912, his family was brought undone by the death of Petiu's mother. Shortly after, his father, Felix, took a new job in the town of Joigny, nearly 30 miles away from Auxerre. Because of the distance, he decided to leave Petiu and his brother Maurice with an aunt so that they could finish their education. However, with both parents now gone, 
Petu's behavior grew even worse and he was soon expelled. Felix had Petu move in with him at Joani. However, proximity to his father had little effect on his behavior and he was expelled from his new school as well. For the rest of his adolescence, Petu continued to display a disregard for the rules, behaving as if they didn't apply to him. When he was 17, he was arrested for stealing from and vandalizing a mailbox. Following this incident, he had his first brush with authority. He was apprehended for the destruction and was once again given over to medical professionals for assessment. This time, Petu was diagnosed as mentally ill, and his psychiatrist decreed that his personal and hereditary problems limited his responsibility for his acts. As a result of this vague diagnosis, the charges against Marcel were dropped, and he was allowed to go free. This experience with the police did nothing to dissuade Petu's reckless behavior. He was expelled twice more before he finally graduated from a school in Paris. 18-year-old Petu had graduated in the middle of World War I, and like so many of his compatriots, he was soon called on to join the war effort. He was drafted in 1916. Despite his criminal record and history of mental illness, he was deemed competent to fight and sent to the front line. Petu was stationed in the region of Aisne. The area was something of a hotspot during the war and saw numerous high casualty battles. Thousands of soldiers on both sides died in Ain. Petu himself was lucky to escape the region with his life. While there, he suffered gunshot wounds and was exposed to toxic gases, leaving him temporarily incapacitated. To give him time to recover from his injuries, Petu was shuttled between several hospitals and veteran rest homes. But while his body healed, his mental health was left unchecked. He fell back into his habit of reckless disregard for rules and was caught stealing blankets. Stealing military resources, especially during wartime, was a serious offense. Petu was imprisoned in Orléans and ordered to undergo a psychological evaluation. He was again diagnosed mentally ill, but now with 100% more shell shock. Today, we know shell shock as post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. The condition is brought on by experiencing or witnessing traumatic events, like war, terrorist attacks, or physical violence. People who suffer from PTSD often relive these events, are plagued by disturbing, unwanted thoughts, and feel unbidden waves of sadness, fear, or anger. They're also frequently detached from those around them. If Petiu did indeed suffer from this condition, he would have been just one in tens of thousands of soldiers affected. Along with this less understood condition, he was also diagnosed as a kleptomaniac. The psychiatrist argued that Marcel could not physically stop himself from stealing. In spite of these diagnoses, he was returned to the battlefield once more. However, he didn't last long. He was soon sent home after being injured in battle again. Though it's possible he expedited his own exit with a self-inflicted gunshot or grenade wound to his foot. While it's unclear from records exactly what caused Petu's return, it's more than likely he had suffered from some kind of mental breakdown, brought on by the trauma of the front lines. Either way, upon Petiu's return home, the military recommended he be committed to a psychiatric asylum. 
but Petiu leveraged the latest diagnosis to obtain a disability pension and never saw the inside of the institution. With no money troubles to speak of, he was free to do as he pleased. He turned his attention to finding a vocation. The French government had set up an accelerated education program for returned veterans, a scheme intended to help them find new roles following the war. Petiu enrolled in the program, and after only eight months, completed the classroom portion of his medical education. In an ironic twist, Petiu interned at a psychiatric hospital in Evreux. It was here that he eventually earned his medical degree in 1921, when he was 24. Now an accredited doctor, he moved to the quiet village of villeneuve sur yonne As the town's physician, he found himself in a position of tantalizing power, and he set about making the most of it, starting with the unfettered access to narcotics. He quickly became addicted and would reportedly remain that way for the rest of his life. He also encouraged addiction in his patients by prescribing them heavy doses of those same drugs. And though he was sure to charge the villagers for their generous prescriptions, he also applied for lucrative government assistance for his services. Petut led a double life in the small village for a number of years. Outwardly, he was a popular, successful doctor. He used his natural gifts to keep his patients happy, but he was also something of a menace. He caused car accidents with his reckless driving, continued to run his double billing scam, and allowed his kleptomania to control his actions. When visiting Petiu, even his own brother, Maurice, had to check his pockets to make sure nothing had been taken. Despite these erratic, reckless behaviors, Petiu enjoyed his status as the well-liked local doctor. One of his patients was an elderly woman named Madame Fleury. The madam had a daughter named Louise, who caught Petiu's eye. In 1926, the two began a secretive affair. But in a small town, gossip spread fast. It seemed everyone in town knew about the relationship. Eventually, Petiu must have grown tired of Louise. But instead of simply breaking things off, it seems he had other ideas. Up next, Petiu's relationship with Louise comes to a mysterious end. This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more. Live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1926, 29-year-old Marcel Petiu was enjoying life as the doctor in a small French village. What he was less pleased with was his relationship with Louise Fleury. 
but he didn't seem content to simply break up with his girlfriend. Around this time, someone broke into the Fleury home and set it on fire. Although Petiu was a clear suspect, there was no physical evidence linking him to the crime. Then, in May of that same year, Louise vanished. Police were called in to investigate the disappearance and spoke with her neighbors. Witnesses reported seeing Marcel loading a large trunk into his car around the same time Louise went missing. But once again, there was no physical evidence to tie the doctor to the odd occurrence. Louise was declared a runaway and was never seen again. A short while after Louise disappeared, a trunk was pulled out of the nearby Yun River. Inside was a gruesome discovery, human remains. It was definitely a woman, but her head was missing. Many locals were now convinced that Petiu had killed Louise, but still, the local police declined to investigate. There was a lack of physical evidence, it was announced. The cases of the body in the trunk and the missing woman went cold. Having once more proven himself impervious to the law, Petiu decided he would make a good mayor for Villeneuve-sur-Yonne. It wasn't long after Louise had disappeared when he declared his candidacy. Even with the most recent brushes with police, he was counting on his popularity and charisma to carry him through. Unsurprisingly, Petiu ran a mayoral campaign that was less than clean. In July, he hired a man to sabotage a debate with his opponent. During the debate, Petiu's goon cut the building's power. Following this, the hired thugs set fires all over town. With panic spreading and many villagers fearing for their safety, Petiu promised to return Villeneuve-sur-Yonne to a place of security. It wasn't until after Petiu had won the election that he was connected to the chaos. But by then, it was too late. He was the town's mayor. Feeling invincible, he set about embezzling money from the town's resources, taking little trouble even to hide his actions. With his newfound power and rapidly expanding bank account, Petiu managed to court a local young woman. And in June of 1927, when he was 30, he wed 23-year-old Georgette Leblay. Though she didn't always play an active role in his schemes, it seems Georgette was quite content to profit from her husband's ill deeds. A year after they married, the couple welcomed a son, Gerhardt. The young family continued to live a happy life together in the village for the next few years. But eventually, Petiu's shady dealings caught up with him, and he was forced to resign from office. And yet, mere months after he was ousted as mayor, he inconceivably won a seat on the city council. As he had done throughout his life, Petiu proved to be unequal to the challenge of living a law-abiding life. He held the position for just a few months before he was once again removed from office in 1932. But by the time the order came through, Petiu and his family had already quit the small town. He had decided that better things awaited them in the nation's capital. They packed their belongings and headed for Paris. Once they arrived in the big city, Petiu set up a new medical practice. He then began talking himself up across town, making himself out to be a doctor of extraordinary ability and renown. Pretty soon, Petiu was prescribing his new patients with the same narcotics that he had used back in the village. He also performed abortions, despite the illegality of the procedure. It's likely he was more interested in money than altruism. 
Though he may have been satisfying the needs of some patients, not everyone under Marcel Petiu's care was in good hands. In 1934, he treated Raymond Ans for an abscess in her mouth. The procedure was relatively straightforward, and Marcel dropped the 30-year-old at home once it was complete. Raymond was unconscious when she arrived at her mother's home. Unfortunately, she would never wake up. Just hours later, she slipped into a coma and died. Raymond's mother demanded an autopsy to find the truth about her daughter's death. Upon finding high levels of morphine in Raymond's system, the coroner recommended a full investigation, but police opted to close the case without looking into it any further. Petiu was investigated the following year after he was flagged for overprescribing narcotics. But as he proved time and again, Petiu had a talent for slipping out of tight situations. He escaped prosecution again. Even as police investigated him, Dr. Petiu remained an immensely popular physician in the community. He was sought after thanks to his charisma and innate charm. This charm helped him secure the position médecin d'état civil. This meant that he was responsible for signing the death certificates for people brought into the city's morgues. It comes as no surprise that Petiu saw this new position as another opportunity to enrich himself. He stole valuables from the corpses and sometimes burglarized the homes of the dead. It seems that Petiu was, as the doctor had suggested earlier, incapable of controlling his kleptomania. On one occasion, a police officer caught him stealing a book from a store. Instead of replacing the book and walking away, Marcel physically assaulted the officer. In the commotion, he made a hasty escape. Here we can see Petiu's kleptomania causing havoc in his life. Although he was wealthy enough to simply purchase any books he wanted, his condition dictated that he take it. People with kleptomania are not known for stealing items of significant value. Typically, the stolen goods are discarded or given away soon after the act. The compulsion is to steal, not to have. In a 1997 article from Forensic Science International, researchers found that kleptomaniacs often feel significant amounts of tension in the moments right before they steal. This tension is eased by an intense feeling of relief in the immediate aftermath of taking the item. It's possible that Petiu's lifelong kleptomania exacerbated his relationship with criminal behaviors. The high he experienced after breaking some kind of rule or taboo may have replicated the one he felt when he stole. Despite any joy the theft of the book may have given him, it seemed that this run-in with the police spooked Marcel. A couple of days after the altercation, he turned himself in, pleading for mercy. He relied on his documented history of mental illness to explain away his actions. He was acquitted of the charges against him, but ordered to check into a psychiatric hospital. As soon as he was admitted, however, Petiu demanded he be released. He insisted he had already been cured of any mental instability. The doctor assigned to his case declared Petiu to be chronically unbalanced, but agreed to release him from the hospital in February of 1937. For the next few years, Petiu seemed to have kept a fairly low profile. Perhaps his forced stay at the hospital had made him fearful of what repercussions his actions might bring. That said, he was a long way from a model citizen. Between 1937 and 1940, he avoided paying taxes by reporting less than 10% of his earnings. 
This tax evasion might have been noticed sooner had it not been for the outbreak of World War II. Germany invaded Poland in September of 1939, and before long, their forces marched all across Europe. In June of 1940, France fell to the Nazi invasion. In an effort to stave off unnecessary destruction, Paris had been declared an open city. This meant that the invading forces were expected to peaceably occupy the city instead of attacking it. During this occupation, French citizens across Paris and around the country were drafted into various jobs to support the German war effort. Here, Marcel Petiou once again found a way to use his skills to enrich himself. He began writing medical certificates to help people avoid conscription. Though his behavior raised suspicion, he was never arrested. His medical knowledge was too valuable during wartime. Nevertheless, Petiou began using a new name when advertising his shadier services. Many knew him as Dr. Eugene a helpful, rebellious doctor who performed abortions for desperate women and handed out bogus medical certificates. Alongside those services, it was whispered that Dr. Eugene was able to help in other ways. In January of 1942, Petiu's neighbor, a wealthy Jewish furrier named Joachim Gushinov, came to him desperate. Gushinov feared for his life, he told Petiu. He needed to get out of France, and he had hundreds of thousands of francs and a large collection of valuable fur coats stashed away. He hoped his fortune would help grease the right wheels. It's unclear why Gushinov sought Petiu's help. Petiu did like to lie and tell people he was a member of the French resistance, and word might have gotten around. It's also possible that the subject of escaping France came up in a casual conversation. However it happened, his neighbor's desperation gave Petiu an idea. What happened next is unclear, but based on what we know, we can take an educated guess. Petiu agreed to help Gushinov escape, using his resistance connections. Before he left the country, Petiu told Gushinov he needed to be inoculated. Then he injected the unsuspecting man with a lethal dose of cyanide. Once Gushinov was dead, Petiu took his money and the finest of his possessions for himself. Suddenly, his smaller money-making scheme seemed so insignificant. Why collect meager sums of money for secret medical procedures when desperate people would pay handsomely for the chance to escape Paris? In Petiu's twisted mind, the latter was far easier and would show much higher returns, especially if he found a way to be efficient. With his evil new business idea formulated, all that was left to do was find unsuspecting customers. Coming up, Marcel Petiu starts his deadly reign as the werewolf of Paris. Now, back to the story. As war raged across Europe, France was suffering through oppressive Nazi occupation. Paris, a city typically diverse for the time, was suddenly a much more dangerous place for minorities targeted by Adolf Hitler's regime. Jewish people were the most famously and widely targeted of the groups. But the hateful rhetoric also persecuted the queer community, the Romani people, communists, and more. Criminals were also punished more severely, as were resistance fighters and those suspected of giving them aid. Parisians looked on in horror as their neighbors were deported to German concentration camps. 
But as Marcel Petit witnessed the terror, he saw a money-making opportunity. After telling him he'd help him escape, 45-year-old Petiu had murdered his wealthy Jewish neighbor and stolen his considerable fortune. Now he was ready to pull the same deadly scam on other desperate Parisians. Making use of connections he had in the resistance, Petiu began to get the word out. He was helping to facilitate the escape of anyone who needed to leave France. Soon, he gathered around him an assortment of ne'er-do-wells, criminals, and opportunists, and set to work. Working alongside Petiu were some childhood friends. As far as we can tell, none of the men had genuine connections to the resistance, but each felt sure that Petiu's plan was legit. Once preparations had been made, the operation needed a name that would allow them to get out the word but remain under the radar. Flytox. To potential clients of Flytox, it perhaps didn't bode well that the name was inspired by a pesticide. But what's in a name when safe passage to South America is on offer? But in this name, the true evil of Petiu's plot was hiding in plain sight. Instead of helping people escape to Argentina as he promised, he planned to kill them all with toxic drugs. Petiu and his unknowing accomplices set up a network of contacts to disperse information about their offering. Word spread steadily throughout Paris. For 25,000 francs, Dr. Eugene and the operation known as Flytox would help you get beyond the Nazis' reach. But before things could build steam, Petiu's past caught up with him. For years, he'd made a living prescribing his patients large doses of addictive medication, even when he was aware of their existing addictions. Petiu didn't care who his actions hurt, as long as he got paid. But with German forces running the town, the tolerance for drug addicts had waned. Two of his patients were arrested in a citywide crackdown and ratted Petiu out as their de facto dealer. In late February of 1942, the popular doctor was arrested on drug charges and was heading for an embarrassing trial featuring two star witnesses. Jean-Marc Van Beaver was an addict, and Mart Kate was the mother of an addict. Both had first-hand experience purchasing prescriptions from Petiu and were offered lesser sentences in exchange for their testimony. While he awaited his trial, Petiu contacted Mart and tried to convince her to say that the prescriptions were faked and that her drug-addicted daughter had simply stolen the drugs. But as the court date approached, Mart intended to testify as originally planned. Then, in March, both Jean-Marc and Mart disappeared. Mart's husband received two letters from his wife. She wrote that, fearing for her life, she intended to escape France. Mart's family suspected something tragic had befallen her at Petiu's hands. But there was no concrete evidence to disprove the story of her escape from France. When the case went cold, there was little that could be done. Mart was declared missing, forcing her loved ones to move on with their lives as best they could. In reality, Petiu had murdered both Mart and Jean-Marc. It's unclear how he was able to get them alone, but it's possible he lured them with offers of money or narcotics. Once he had them on the hook, they became his next unsuspecting victims. With both key witnesses missing, the case against Petiu was much weaker, but still winnable. 
The trial began in late May, nearly three months after his initial arrest. In late June or early July, the trial was closed, and he was finally convicted of a crime, forging prescriptions and overselling narcotics. He was initially ordered to pay a fine of 10,000 francs for each offense, but after appeal, this was reduced to a total of 2,400 francs. This sum was little more than a slap on the wrist for the wealthy doctor who'd been swindling money out of people for the past two decades, and his newest scheme was raking in even greater amounts. By this time, it's likely Flytox had already claimed its first victims. Petu's associates had been working hard to get the word out about the escape route. After all, they got a cut of the payments, so the more people they recruited, the more money they were paid. They just had no idea they were sending people to their deaths. And it wasn't just Flytox customers who came to Petu's door. He was still offering under-the-table medical services as Dr. Eugene. But by now, Petu was so comfortable murdering people that it was easier than putting in the effort to help them. Nellie Denise Hotin was newly married and pregnant. She reportedly sought out Dr. Eugene in mid-1942 in hopes of having an abortion. She went to find him at his home, where she'd been told the procedure would be performed in secret. Nellie must have been nervous making her way across the city under the cover of darkness. She hurried through the streets, hoping no one would recognize her. She didn't want to think what would happen if someone found out what she was doing. She was relieved when she made it to Petu's second house on Rue Lesseur, but that relief is one of the last things Nellie would have felt. Once she entered the house, she was never seen again. Exactly what happened to Nellie is unclear, but she definitely died by Petu's hand, swept into the growing pile of bodies in his basement. It's believed that his preferred method of killing his Flytox victims was to poison them. Under the pretense of inoculating them for entry into South America, he injected them with cyanide. Then, with unmasked glee, he watched them die. Once his victims were dead, he would steal the valuables from their bodies, then dispose of them. At first, he would dismember the corpses. Then, in the dead of night, he would dump the body parts into the Seine. However, when body parts began washing ashore, they drew the attention of the police. And that was not good for business. So Petu rethought his operation. In his basement, he dug pits into which he planned to throw the corpses of his victims. It was now that Petu entangled his brother in the scheme. He asked Maurice to have shipments of quicklime sent to his home. Quicklime, or calcium oxide, was believed to speed up the decomposition of human flesh and strip it to bones. At the time, it was a common crime novel trope. Maurice did as he was asked, but had no idea what his brother was using the chemical for. Now, with a more secretive method of disposing of his victims, Petu's evil flytox scam began operating at full speed. Victims were unwittingly paying 25,000 francs to facilitate their own murder. And business was booming. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back in the next episode as Marcel Petu's murder business picks up speed.
You can find more episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Serial Killers, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Serial Killers on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Jacob Davison, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 